Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. It's another episode of Simply Amazing. Tim Ryder from the Apple. Taryn's not with us this week. My man is busy doing his thing, and he'll be back next time. I'm almost positive of that. We spoke today. But uh, in the meantime, we're here with a special guest. Um, You might have caught him uh, hanging out among Mets Twitter over the last few years. That's how me and my buddy here connected. You might have seen him covering... uh, well, my goodness, uh, the Tigers, some visiting teams in uh, in Detroit throughout the season for MLB.com. And you might have seen uh, he's got a new book out. Title is Only in Queens, Stories from Life as a New York Mets fan. My buddy, James Shapiro. James, welcome to the show. And uh, right off the bat, my friend, congratulations. That is such an accomplishment to have a book out. Well, thank you very much. It's good to be here. It was a long process, a fun process, but I think worth it in the end. And a lot of fun. So I guess my first question, I was, it's, it's everybody, it's on sale on Amazon now. Um, looking through the description there, because I have not read it yet. So I'm actually very curious to get into our discussion. But I saw that it was independently published, which I love that. Like, you know, I'm sure that there was a process trying to put it out, trying to sell it. And you just said, you know what, I'm putting it out into the world. And man, I love that. What was that process like? Totally. So, I mean, as you probably know, freelancing, getting stuff published when you're not established in the business, it's a lot of cold calling, cold emailing, cold messaging. And I wrote this originally as a senior thesis in nonfiction writing my senior year of college. And once I got out, I was querying agents left and right. A few got back to me as for proposals, sample chapters, but nothing, nothing really landed even after I started sending those out. So eventually I just said, all right, I'll do it myself. And Amazon has a great self-publishing platform. It's a bit of a sort of technological journey to get everything fitting their specs and everything looking right, but it got it done in the, in the end. That's awesome, man. So, um, of course, looking at a, you know, the life of a Mets fan from what I presume is your perspective, this must be, you know, the um, almost like the epitome of just a very unique, unique through your eyes look at, at fandom as a New York Mets fan, which... Of course, as we all know, and anybody with a, you know, a pulse and any sort of baseball fandom in them knows that being a Mets fan is not the easiest thing to be. So, um, yeah, tell me a little bit about the book, man. Yeah, so you're absolutely right. It is a sort of each person has their own unique journey, and that's true of Mets fans compared to other fans. But I think it's also true even among Mets fans. So what I tried to do, you know, there's some play-by-play, you know, you'll hear about what was happening when the Mets lost the World Series in 2015, things like that. But what I was more going for was, you know, moments that are going to stand out, not because they were huge on the baseball field, but because they were important on an individual level as a Mets fan. You know, one of my favorite moments in there is a completely nondescript game. It's this game from May 2014, I think, when the Mets were playing the Pirates. They had the lead. Jose Valverde gave up the lead. 
And then right after the game, they released him. And that that's important because we were coming out of this big rebuild. It had been years and years of really bad baseball. And suddenly they're releasing this guy. And that was a signal to me, like, you know, whoa, we actually are trying to get better. We suddenly care. And you know, that moment, I doubt anyone really remembers that. But that is one that stood out and one I think that Mets fans who read this book are going to enjoy being reminded of. That's great. So like, you know, I guess you mentioned that you wrote it as a, as a senior thesis. Um, like, did that turn into, was that just a skeleton of the final product? Were there additions? Were there, you know what, like, you know, researching, did you realize like, oh man, this was something that I might've left out the first time around. And like, did it expand? Did you find yourself learning new things? Like having so much knowledge as a baseball fan, as a Mets fan to begin with, did you find yourself learning new things? And you know, these new things, do they make it into the book in some fashion that maybe they weren't in as uh, as the thesis in that form? So it actually stayed very similar. Obviously the main thing was going through what I had done from four or five years ago, making sure everything was updated to be timely, not out of date, you know, still applicable. But when I originally wrote it, I went through so many baseball reference pages, so many stat lists. It ended, it even, you know, in that first writing, it came in around a hundred thousand words. So there wasn't much expansion, I didn't think. And I could have you know, continued it to cover from 2018 when the book ends to the present. But the book is really centered around the story of David Wright's career. That's the through line through the entire thing. And so I thought it would sort of be strange to, you know, expand to this, maybe an extra quarter of the book after that main through line ends. So I decided to just keep it as is within that timeline. The updates were things I had to do and things I had to really, you know, dig deep to find out whether someone's stats from 2018 are still accurate because he played two games in 2020 with the Mariners or whatever. But <laughs> yeah, most most of the, the body stayed very similar. That's so cool, man. And now once once you knew that, all right, this is it, I have it all lined up and and you have everything set up where your 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 formatting is right. Like what's that feeling like to know that hey, it's done, it's out in the world. Let's see how it how it does. What's that like? Like internally, I guess, processing like holy Cal, I just put this all yeah. together and, and here it is. It's really cool. I mean, a, one great moment is seeing the first proof in print. Of course, that's a tough moment because then you got to go back in, make all these tiny little changes, fix the formatting of the cover, whatever. That was a whole like eight hour journey. But seeing the thing in print and actually, you know, get holding this book in your hands, which I'd spent so long putting together and just, you know, working to get out in the world. That was great to see. And then the day it came out, it was even cooler to see people and actually seeing the things I was saying about it. People seeing, you know, the tweets I was writing saying, oh, yeah, Ale Soler. I want to read about him. Oh, Lasting's Millage, Fernando Martinez. That sounds interesting. It was, you know, a real sign that there are actually people to whom these really niche stories are going to be fun to read. And I was really happy to see that. I love that you that you know I I I'm, I can again I can only only assume at this point but um, that you, you know as a cert, as a fan of a certain age I guess having David Wright be like almost like your centralizing polar force throughout the the storyline um, it makes sense and it kind of speaks directly to how important he is to the franchise and um, I, I'm I'm not 
surprised at how just adored he remains throughout the fan base, throughout baseball, you know, every now, especially on the hall of fame ballot, getting, you know, hopefully enough, uh, traction to stay on the ballot, which I think he should, but, um, I think that's a cool, very cool aspect that, that I'm looking forward to, to, uh, to getting into myself now. Um, how, how old are you? How old are you? Like, I guess where, where, where does your age span throughout the storyline? Just for sure, so through college. Yeah, to, I finished college in 2019. I'm 26, almost 27 now. So the story starts, well, I guess it starts a little earlier, but the real meat of it starts in 2004 when I first started going to Mets camps when I was seven, continues through the end of the 2018 season. Nice. So that, again, like you're able to tell personal stories and your personal attachment to this team. And, you know, you're following along uh, a franchise icon the the rotating cast of characters, the at times follies of the uh, of the franchise. Um, oh man, I I honestly I can't wait to check it out now. <laughs> um, any any ideas into what you be looking into next? Also, before we get into that, how long does a hundred thousand words actually take? What are you doing? Like you know, thousand word sessions as it comes. Like that that seems like a lot of writing. It was, although this was one of those where once I started, it was coming out pretty easy because it seemed like these are just things that I've been sort of subconsciously thinking about how to tell for, it seemed like, I guess, years beforehand. So actually sitting down and writing it, I was doing about 5,000 words a week, sometimes fewer. That was honestly because that was, you know, roughly a chapter length and our assignment as it was to turn in a chapter or a segment every week. And so I was meeting that with 5,000 words, about 20 pages, 15 pages, give or take every week. So it took definitely a few months. It was, I'm not sure exactly when I finished, but you know, at least three, four five months. That's still like ridiculously impressive. Like three, four five months. And we're going to get into your other job in a second. That's, you know, that's a lot of writing. And I'm, again, you know, finalizing everything, that's, that's just incredibly impressive. Um, now, are, do you have anything else lined up as far as ideas? I know it's very time consuming to put together anything of this sort of substance, but um, any ideas of what could be coming down the pipeline um, as far as, you know, published works? Well, one thing I've thought of is sort of another baseball history work. In journalism school, my big final master's project was I did a recreation of the day the Brooklyn Dodgers won the 1955 World Series. You know, I found some old Brooklyn Dodgers fans, guys who actually remember the day. I interviewed as many of them as I could. I pulled the uh, the old newspaper records, listened to the radio broadcasts, watched all the video highlights I could, and just put it together into, you know, a, a summary of all the events of the day, both at the stadium and also in Brooklyn around the world with people watching. And one thing I've thought of is to just do that for, you know, a bunch more world series, do that for the 86 world series, do that for, well, I haven't figured exactly which ones I'm going to use yet, but do that for, you know, some of the famous baseball games of the last century. Plus, obviously there aren't going to be people who live to see all of those still living today, but, 
you know, go through the old newspapers, go through the broadcasts and just really recreate those days. That honestly is a lot more time consuming. That was a 10,000, 12,000 word story. And that alone took about three or four months with interviews, transcribing, reading through pages and pages of old newspaper. But that's something that I want to look at at some point when I, when, if ever I have time. Oh, that would be awesome. I think we could, you could probably crowdsource some like incredible world series games and probably something that nobody ever probably even think of anymore. Uh, I wish I could recall, maybe it was 75, but Johnny bench, somebody faked an intentional walk, uh, an intentional walk to him and threw a strike right down the middle and ended the world series. I believe I, I oh, have, you know that's, yeah, that's, that's one of those videos that you see all the time, but then you think about it and it's like, I don't actually remember when that was from, <laughs> that's, that's a great highlight, but I don't remember actually which game it was. It's one of those. Oh man. I'm sure if we, uh, if you crowdsource something like that, man, you come up with a list. But, oh, absolutely. Um, before we jump into other things, anyone listening, guys, I just bought two copies of uh, Only in Queens Stories from Life as a New York Mets fan. One is for me. One is for whoever's listening. Follow James on Twitter. Follow me on Twitter. Let us know you did that and you're entering in the drawing and we're going to give away a free book. We'll probably, I want to say, do that by like the end of next week. Let everybody really pick up steam, but... And of course, wait for the book to arrive. But um, yeah, I can't wait to jump into it, man. And really sincere, a million congratulations once again, because this is, uh, you know, it's an accomplishment. As someone who likes to dabble in writing himself, it's, uh, you know, I am I'm in awe. You said 100,000 words and that just blew my mind. (laughs) Like, you know, that's that's blood, sweat and tears type stuff. That's, you know. You're putting your soul into something, and that's commendable, my friend. And really, tip of the cap. Well, thank you very much. That means a lot to hear, and I hope everyone, readers out there, everyone really just enjoys what I've done. Because honestly, this is, you know, I tried to write the book that I would want to read if I was a Mets fan in the middle of winter just waiting for baseball. And here we are. Mets yeah, fans in the middle exactly. of winter well, baseball fans in the middle of winter waiting for baseball. It should be a great season. Now, I want to talk about your day job, which I know you spend a lot of time in Detroit. Um, I, I was under the impression, because I don't read every article you put out during the season, but I know you were doing a lot of coverage of Tigers games. Now, you were covering both the Tigers at times and the visiting clubs at times for MLB.com. That must be a world of research and preparation going into each series, going into each assignment. And some of these assignments must be coming in very like rapid fire, right? It really is. You know, it's it's a lot of you know reading the stats, reading the stories from the previous week or so, seeing what the storylines are with the teams, whoever's coming in. You know, it's the Pirates coming in. I'll read it up on which uh, they past six or seven games check out the stats from those games, see who's hot, see what storylines I need to follow up on. But even something as simple as, you know, I spend so much time scrolling through these rosters, looking at faces, memorizing the faces I don't know, so I don't get caught in a clubhouse. You know, some guy is saying something interesting, and I say, I'd love to ask about that, but I don't know who that is, and I can't (laughs) tell, so I'm just going to stay to the side. So memorizing faces is a fun one, but it is a lot of prep because... I'll get, you know, from visiting teams, I get two, three, four games each. And that's a lot of prep for a different two, three, four game series every, however long, every week, every few weeks. So it's, 
not this it's not quite the same as you know covering the tigers the home team where you have this season-long relationship you can build up these relationships with players with team officials it's a lot to sort of get done for every different series every different team that comes in yeah but i guess on the flip side of that you're probably networking on a league-wide scale which is um you know that's an accomplishment in itself oh yeah no it's it's really cool. I mean, it's interesting because I get to see a lot of different players. You know, if I'm covering the Tigers, I see the Tigers. But when I'm on visiting teams, I see Julio Rodriguez, Jared Kelenic come in one week. Then the next week, the Astros come in. I see uh, Dusty Baker. Honestly, Dusty is an incredible guy to talk to. He's just everything they say about him is true. A living legend. But then the Diamondbacks come in, Corbin Carroll, Ketel Marte, all these guys. So it's very interesting to, you know, sort of move through all the different teams that are coming in, get the perspectives from all these guys around the league. That is unbelievable, man. Now, of course, the constant throughout that process is is, is the Tigers. Uh, so you're going to get a very good look at them. I'm curious, what's your thoughts on their process? They got uh, Hinch in charge. They have, you know, a lot of young, good young players. Um, I like... Um, uh, Tarek Skubal, I love Casey Mize when he's healthy again. Um, I think everyone's kind of waiting to see what Torkelson's going to be. What, what's going on in Detroit? Is this going to be a, a future contender? Or is this going to be a, a perennial, you know, m- mediocre team? I really do think they have something good going because they looked actually pretty good last year for a stretch, but then they had a few really sort of really tough injuries. You know, Riley Green who is really just a strong player. He looked great in May into June. Then he got hurt and missed a bunch of time. And, and that was a, that was a weird injury, right? That was a foot or something? Yeah, oh, it was something like that. I don't remember exactly what it was, but oh, that's yeah, it was it was something a lot something like that. Yeah, they lost him. They lost Eduardo Rodriguez for a while and he was he was dominating. He he had a stretch of, you know, I think three eight-inning scoreless starts in a row or something like that, which was incredible. And they, the underrated guy, the guy that I don't think many people know about is Kerry Carpenter. <clears throat> Kerry Carpenter. This guy is a great hitter. He, we, They knew he was a power hitter in 21 or, or 22. His last year in the minors, he hit 30 home runs in, I think, less than 100 games. Then he came up and he actually just kept hitting. Everyone thought he was going to be one of those guys who, you know, hits for lots of power in the minors, but maybe it doesn't show up in the majors. He came up and he hit really well. I think... He would have gotten consideration for Rookie of the Year last year, but in 22, he spent a few too many days on the roster, even though he stayed under the at-bats threshold. So, yeah, I mean, the Tigers, I think they're on the verge of at least, you know, wildcard contention. They added Mark Hanna, which I think they're going to love him because, you know, who doesn't? But I think they've got, at the very least, a solid foundation and that if they keep adding to it, could be a strong team. Now, here's my my this is my golden segue. I literally just came up with it now as my worst nightmare was going off my work office phone, which I work in this same office that I'm doing this in <laughs> is ringing while you're talking. So listeners and James, I apologize. Um, give us a quick scattering report on Zach Short. 
He's a he's brought into the Mets as a utility player this uh, offseason. I think it was a minor league deal. Spent, uh, I want to say, the last couple of seasons with the Tigers, if not definitely last season. Um, I'm sure you got a good look at him. Is uh, you know, is he the the speedy utility, decent bat that we're hearing about? Any any sort of feedback on him? I really like Zach Short. He is. I mean, to start, he is just a great team guy. You know, he was the guy who the Tigers would go to as their position player pitching, and he really seemed to love it. He embraced it. Even in the clubhouse, he would be laughing, joking about it, telling all the stories of you know, how he once pitched in college, and he was trying to see if he could get back up to that velocity, but the Tigers wouldn't let him. As far as the as far as it goes on the field, he's from everything I've seen, just a very capable guy on both sides. And sort of like a a Ronnie Cedeno type and an Omar Quintanilla type, but a guy who can not even, I think a step above those guys, a guy who can, who's not going to be an easy out, even if, you know, he's not going to hit 20, 30 homers, but he's going to take a good at bat. If I had sound effects, I would like drop like bombs after Ronnie Cedeno and Omar Quintanilla. <laughs> that was awesome. Oh, that was amazing. But th- those are, I mean, those are solid comps. And it almost seems like he's a clubhouse guy. It seems like he's a scrappy guy. And um, it, it, that almost fits the bill of what David Stearns has kind of been doing this offseason, which leads us into our next topic. Um, what are your thoughts on what the Mets have been doing this offseason? Is this a team that's in neutral or in idle? Is this a team with, with under-the-radar aspirations for – just getting into the dance. Well, what, 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 where are we at in, in January, albeit? Yep. I mean, my read on it is that the Mets are basically around the same place they were last year, but where they were last year had a lot of guys sort of at the very low end of their projections. And if those guys move back towards the high end of their projections, the team has every chance to be solid. You know, like, I think Marte is the prototypical example of this. The team, the Mets haven't replaced Marte. They, he's become almost sort of an afterthought since he was absent a lot of last year. He wasn't that good when he played. But that was, we hope, you know, that was the worst it's going to get. It turns out he's been playing hurt. He's playing in the in winter ball. He's looked a lot better. So I, it seems like what we're doing is just, you know, keeping the team pretty similar to the level it was at and just hoping that the guys we have who are very capable of being better, you know, McNeil, Marte, we talked about, even Lindor, all these guys were just, you know, looking for some rebounds, which I don't think are unrealistic to expect. Oh, absolutely. I'm, I'm with you hundred percent. I think that um, this team underperformed last year. And even if they were performing at, you know, career averages, you don't have to look at 2022, you know, that might've been a high watermark. But even if they're performing at career averages, I think we're going to see a much more productive and like you, I think you hit it on the nose, a much more capable team. Um, you know, there was a good core here to begin with. The moves this offseason have not really wowed anyone. And I think that any even the most optimistic fan would say that. And ding, 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 that's probably me. Um, but there's solid depth moves and it's been solid depth across the board. And guys like, you know, the rotation guys that they've added, you look at Severino, you look at um, uh, Minaya, you, you, I mean, even talking about Zach Short, like even going down towards the bottom rung or, or you know, filling out the, the 40, filling out however you want to look at it, filling out camp. Um, they're, they're filling them out with guys who are capable. And I think that's a really, really important aspect of what they're doing here because, you know, if this team can perform up to 
their capability, even on an average type basis. Um, this could very well be a high 80s, maybe 90 win team. And depending how things shake out, um, th- that could be a very well be a wild card spot. This could even be a mid 80s team. And if the National League really is kind of a dogfight, then, you know, that could play or that could keep them in the mix at least through the, through the summer. And um, that's really all you can ask for if they're not going to go all in under unique circumstances they are in this offseason. I'm, I'm, I'm oddly comfortable with where they're at now. I would still like to see some additions. I would like to see, ah, I think, another back-end reliever. Me and Taron talked about it last week a bit, but I think it's necessary to have someone almost paired up with, um, with Raley as like a, I guess a 2A, 2B type situation. And I really hope Lopez can be that guy, but, you know, that's to be determined. He'll have to kind of prove that. I think his upside is that, but I guess we'll see. Um, I'm more curious to see if the Mets go into the DH pool. I know, you know, Twitter talk has been around Solaire. Everyone was kind of looking at J.D. Martinez for a while. Do you feel like the Mets can get by? with who they have right now, or do they need to go kind of throw a DH in the mix? I know this has kind of been talked about a bunch, but do you feel it's necessary to go that route? Or do you think that versatility should kind of play a bigger role considering the nature of today's DH? Yeah. You know, I don't know if I would say necessary because you're probably going to have Vientos, Bailey platooning at DH. You're going to have Alvarez when he's not catching. So there's a lot of guys who can be the DH on any day, but I would love them to go out and add a DH because, and I think you guys were talking about this last week, that DH, if the season is not going as we'd like, becomes a major trade piece. You know, if they add Justin Turner, JD Martinez, and we get to the all-star break and that person's got 10, 15 home runs and an OPS over 800, that's someone who can bring a really great return. You know, JD Martinez, Martinez, Justin Turner, Soler, these guys, if they're having good years, you have to think are going to bring in a return better than Fam or Kana brought back. And those guys brought back nice prospects of their own. So I think that we the Mets should be learning from what happened last year when, you know, all the guys they had on short-term deals they sent away brought back nice prospects. And I almost think we should be looking to sort of set that up to happen again if things go badly. And I think going out and getting a bat could be a great way to do that. Oh, absolutely. If they're middling and, you know, if J.D. Martin, well, let's let's set the timeline correctly. If J.D. Martinez is still sitting out um, on the available list come when camp opens and, you know, I'm not going to say that his value is going to drop. Like, it's not like he loses much leverage at that point. I'm sure he's getting ready for camp. We've seen many, many players not sign until halfway through camp and be just fine. Um, You know, but let's say the market does dip or at least stall on them or on a DH type guy. If they wait, you know, a while into camp. Um, yeah. Buying at that point. And then if the team is middling, if the team's not going to be in contention, flipping them at the, at the deadline. I mean, like you said, we have a blueprint from last year and it turned the Mets top five prospects into one of the best top fives, not one of the best top fives, but in that conversation, for in that group of the best top fives in the game. And there's a lot more work to do as far as the prospect list. And I'm probably not the prospect king there. We're going to have one of those guys on the, uh, on the show in a few weeks, actually. But um, it, it's, 
it's promising and, it, and options are always a good thing for me as a fan, uh, you know, analyzing the team from a, a writing or podcasting perspective. I like when the Mets have options. I like when they have, well, if this goes well, we're good. If this doesn't go well, we have plan B's. And like, I, I think that I guess the, uh, the line that you were on, on where they can go, if they do want to jump into this, or even if they want to dip into their current core, if things aren't working, because you know that things are going to change big time in the next couple of years. It, uh, it's certainly a, a fulcrum point type year for them. And uh, it should be exciting. Absolutely. And, you know, like you said, I love having options. And one thing I think that sometimes gets overlooked is that the Mets have a fair amount of guys with a year or two left of control who could already be nice trade deadline options or just nice guys to keep around. You know, Adrian Hauser. ERA was around four last year. If you get to the deadline, you've got a guy with an ERA around four, perfectly capable fourth or fifth starter. That's a guy you can deal, bring a solid return. Severino, if he's looking good, same thing. Rayleigh, Smith. These are guys who can bring back solid returns. And I think for that reason, it's sort of the season could go any number of ways. But I think either way, there's going to be some good that comes out of it. Because if things are bad, as they were last year, we saw what came out of that. The farm got completely revitalized. And I think not to the same extent, but I do think something similar could happen if the season doesn't go the way we want it to. Hey, man, we can always look back and say the Mets got Jeremiah Jackson for Don Leone and probably won the whole trade deadline just under the radar. But, you know, will that ever happen again? No, it's like uh, Haley's Comet. But, <laughs> it will, that, dude, I swear. I mean, I joke about it, but that was an unreal move. I still think Jackson's going to be a, a decent player, but we'll, you know, We'll get into that. I, like I said, I'm not the prospect guy, but I'm excited for it. Um, I want to ask you about David Wright. You talked about him. He's a centralized figure in the in, in your book. And, of course, everybody, that is only in Queens. Stories from Life as a New York Mets fan. It's James Shapiro. You can find it on Amazon. Uh, once again, I just ordered two, and one of them is for our listeners. Follow on Twitter. Let James know you followed him. Let me know you followed him. I'm going to tweet this all out. Follow everybody. Let us know you did so. And you're entered into the drawing. You get a free book if you win. Um, details will be on Twitter or X or whatever you call it now. Um, David Wright on the Hall of Fame ballot. David Wright is a very unique situation when you're looking at Cooperstown. Um, his peak years can absolutely hang in any conversation in just about any position if you're talking about Hall of Fame. His career longevity, of course, completely derailed due to injuries. Um, what are your thoughts on his and admittedly slim Hall of Fame candidacy? And do you think he stays on the ballot for a few years? And do you think that his situation, again, a very unique situation, could gain any steam considering his peak was was as good as it was? Well, it does look like he's going to stay on the ballot this year, which, you know, thank goodness. But even for about five years since he retired, I've, I, back then, I sort of identified a few players who I would compare him to. I had like this group of four, I think Joe Maurer, David Wright, Dustin Pedroia, Jorge Posada. I think guys like this, you know, guys who, whose overall numbers maybe don't quite measure up to, you know, the total peak stats average, whatever we want to call it, the, these Hall of Fame criteria that people come up with, but guys who are almost at that level 
and who have also, you know, become the face of a team, been just models of sportsmanship and consistency and just, you know, steadiness when other things might go bad. Those are guys who I think belong in the Hall of Fame. You know, we'll see it when Pajari is on the ballot next year. We we saw when Posada somehow fell off the ballot after a single one, which was weird, even just given his stats. He's one of the better offensive catchers ever. Oh, he's but I do think, same thing with Bernie Williams, to be honest. Bernie Williams. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean Jorge Posada was. We can talk oh, about Delgado forever, but oh, yeah, we're on the same page here. <laughs> oh, no, totally. So, you know, even statistically, I did I did a story about this the other day. When you look at David Wright and Joe Maurer, it's weird that there's such a discrepancy between them. Obviously, the main difference, Maurer was a catcher, right, was a third baseman. That's a huge positional adjustment. But on the other hand, Maurer didn't really catch for the last, like, five, six years of his career. Wright played third base the entire way. Maurer played hundreds of games at DH, right? I think his total is three. So when we look at that positional adjustment, it does seem like it shouldn't split them so widely because Wright is playing hundreds of more games at this pretty premium position in third base. I mean, it's not catcher, but it's also not first base. It's a position where not everyone is a great hitter. So I do think he needs at least a chance to get a few years on the ballot for people to take a longer look once this top group of guys moves on and the other guys at the bottom fall off. Because I do think it's a unique situation, like you said, that needs its own look. You know, it needs a, an individualized look before people just write it off. Yeah. And, and, you know, as long as, as long as he's getting votes every year, like, I think it's, it's, I don't, I don't even think far fetched would do it justice to see him be voted in by the writers. But I think it's possible that one day a committee gets him in. And I'm sure there are are precedents. I know you can't look at Koufax because Koufax was just you know he was like an alien. He was he was a, a, a god amongst men, <laughs> and oh, at, least at that time, just ridiculous. Um, Wright wasn't that, but he he was among the elite. And you know there there's got to be other precedents. There's got to be other examples, but that would be a, probably an entire another. Uh, Another episode. We can get into a whole 40. Oh, 100%. Um, James, real quick. Again, the book, I can't wait to read it. Only in Queens, Stories from Life as a New York Mets fan. I, I can't wait. I mean, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show, man. I Thank you for having me. This is fantastic. It's great to be here, and this has been a lot of fun. Uh, where can everybody find you on social media? Sure. So I'm on Twitter. X, whatever it's <laughs> called. I can't even keep track. It's all right. Elon probably doesn't listen to this show. You can call whatever you yep. want. And I'm at J Shapiro underscore MLB. Shapiro is S-C-H-A-P-I-R-O. We spell it differently than everyone else. I'm not sure why. So it's J Shapiro underscore MLB. I'm also, I'm, I write the newsletter Shaybridge Report. It's shaybridge.substack.com. We'll find med stuff there throughout the off season into the season. Just, you know, whatever Mets topics come up that I think are interesting. Just did a post about why I'm not giving up on Brett Beatty, fun things like that. So find me there. And that's where I am. It sounded like I had a third item, but I don't. Well, why are you not giving up on Brett Beatty? And I'm curious because I'm I'm with you in that boat. I like his bat a lot. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a big part of it. I, I love the swing. It seems like the power is there. He hits the ball hard. And what I did in that story was I pulled up just dozens and dozens of examples of guys 
who had two, three, four really tough years to start their careers, but then it turned out to clearly be way too early to give up on them. You know, Justin Turner, Howard Johnson, even guys like Gil Hodges, Duke Snyder, Mike Schmidt, Jose Ramirez, Rusty Staub, a bunch of guys like this who go through some tough times at the beginning. You know, people always seem to write off prospects way too quickly. Even someone like Jared Kelnick had two tough years, was okay last year, but it looks like he could still be solid. So I think when you see someone with the kind of swing, the kind of power that Beta looks like he has, it's way too early to give up just because you see a few bad numbers in less than 162 games to start a career. Oh, I'll see you a Beatty and I'll, I'll raise you a Vientos. And I think he's in the same boat. I don't think it's the same type of hit skill, but um, equatable on the level of uh, Beatty's uh, gap-to-gap power and Vientos's pure power, albeit with a bunch of warts on both ends. Um, yeah. They could both be at least singular elite skills. I really believe that. I think that they do have the um, the ceiling for that, but – you know, time will tell. I hope they get the the the, uh, the chance this year to really develop, but we'll see if the Mets let them do that. Uh, James, we're about, about out of time. Again, thank you so much for joining us, everybody. Uh, we're back probably early next week. Taryn will be back. We'll uh, hopefully have some Mets news to discuss. Uh, man, everybody, go check out the book. Go buy it on Amazon. Only in Queens. Stories from Life as a New York Mets fan. James Shapiro. S-C-H. A-P-I-R-O. <laughs> and everybody else, you guys know the uh, the call signs. It's L-F-G-M. We'll see you next time. James, you want to uh, sign us off here? It's peace. L-F-G-M. Thank you so much for having me. Peace. All right. You got it. Nailed it, bro. All right. We'll see you guys next time. Later. <laughs>